Hello and welcome back to A Functional Approach with Dr. Jim Cheltis. I am Dr. Jim Cheltis. Today I wanted to riff just a little bit on tick disorders. Um, these are something that's becoming increasingly, increasingly common, especially in our youth. Um, I have two teenagers and so I have, you know, been sort of, you know, immersed in in you know children's upbringing through elementary schools and middle schools and you know into puberty and high school and all that and um, i've had a chance to sit and observe you know our youth and um, and what i'm finding is an increase an absolute increase in various types of tick behavior um, this comes in many forms so uh today i'm going to talk about you know what kinds of ticks are there? You know, like, is it just when you like can't stop moving your shoulder or your cheek or something? No, that's only one form. So we're going to talk about different forms of tick behavior or disorder, if you want to call it that. Um, we're going to talk about, you know, what are some mechanisms in the brain? Like, what is the neurology, the actual neurology at play for something like a tick? Um, and we're going to talk about some external pressures, perhaps, things in our environment that might be driving this. Uh, why all of a sudden, you know, respectively speaking, do more people have this? Um, why are our children showing more of this? Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And, um, and lastly, and, you know, maybe most importantly, what can be done, right? Um, if you go a mainstream route, you, you you tend to end up on drugs, you know, for something like this. And, and I'm not sure that a tick behavior, especially if it's relatively mild and maybe just annoying and possibly embarrassing, um, warrants, you know, these heavy uh, neurological drugs. So uh, if there's something that is, of course, just, you know, inhibiting uh, the quality of life, um, making it so that that person can't really function normally, well, then sure, of course, that we have big guns and, uh, and neurologists, you know, in the mainstream environment, medical environment, should be consulted. And, uh, you know, brain imaging and workups should be done because, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes a neurological symptom, right, just any of them, but in this case, maybe a tick disorder, could be a sign of something deeper. So um, we can't just think everything's all peaches all the time and just pretend like there might not be something lurking, there could be. You, you don't know. You don't know. In a younger person, the chances of, of there being something very ominous, I would say, is lower than in a, an adult or in, in somebody of advanced age, perhaps, um, where things like little micro strokes might be going on, and it might be a stroke in an area that, that leads to a certain neurological symptom, such as a tick. Uh, or there could obviously be some kind of a space-occupying lesion, like a tumor. Um, something along the lines of an MRI would be fantastic at picking up on those things. Uh, if it's a child that's having a, a serious neurological condition, it would probably some, be something like a tumor um, that would need to be ruled out. Having said that, I had to get that out of the way because that's scary. Um, it's not usually that. <laughs> Okay, tick disorders are not usually something ominous. It's just something that's not firing right. It's just a, you know, kind of like a software issue, you know, in, in the brain. And, um, and there are, are ways to do it. So let's define what a tick is. 
We might know it, like I mentioned in the beginning, you might know it as just like somebody who like squints their eye repeatedly and they can't stop doing that or, or does something with their neck muscle or their jaw. And you know, this can be um, subtle. It could be something that, uh, that only they know about. Maybe all they're doing is contracting their abs you know, over and over again, or their leg muscle, and that's happening under the table, and nobody's really aware of it, um, but but they are, and it might not be a problem for them. Literally, it could be a no big deal situation, but more times than not, this is a behavior that is not totally under their control, and so if you think about contracting a, a leg muscle or a jaw muscle or something, um, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand times a day, right? You can imagine that that could get a little painful. So a lot of times there are, you know, kind of uh, pain syndromes or physical um, outcomes of, of something like a motor tick. And that's what I'm describing right now. The most common one we think of is a motor tick. Motor meaning like muscles, things that move us around in theory. Um, it, it can literally be anywhere in the body. So a motor tick is, is one to, to watch for. Um, one of the most common ones actually that never really get appreciated are the vocal ticks. Um, a vocal tick is just, a, a, just like a motor tick, it's just a, a sound that you make. Um, probably the more well-known version of that happens to be the most aggressive condition that we know of for vocal tics, which would be like a Tourette syndrome. And it's noted for using like F-words or like derogatory, um, you know, race insults when they're not really intending to be um, mean or derogatory or racist, right? It's just something that their brain can't dampen. And I don't know why, you know, it's known for all of the foul language in Tourette's. It, Tourette's can be simply just grunting, um, clearing the throat. You know, a, the most common one is sniffing. You know, you, you might notice some people in your life constantly sniffing, just, you know, just they'll, they'll get to the end of a sentence and they'll go, you know, little sniff, sniff, right? And if you really pay attention, you, you probably will notice a pattern to it because maybe one sniff doesn't quite scratch that itch. It doesn't quite get it. So. I'm going to sniff two times or or maybe I'm going to sniff two times really quick and then wait once and sniff a third time after that. But, you know, everybody kind of has their own pattern that, that comes from it. It's easy to brush off a sniff or even a clearing of the throat. Um, and it's easy to think that it's not a neurological concept. Um, when it's you, you might just say, yeah, my throat's always, I got a lot of phlegm or yeah, I don't know. I was tired and so I just you know my throat hurts and it just itches you know or I've got allergies or you know there's lots of reasons to kind of explain it away but really if you look at the patterning of it, it you know it like I said it might follow some kind of a of a maybe a sentence or uh, you know an interaction of some sort especially if those interactions are a little bit on the stressful side that can sometimes bring out this type of tick behavior. Um, you know, a, a stressed brain or a fatigued brain will, will tend to show the weaknesses. And I'm going to talk about the pathways in a minute. Um, so we have motor ticks and vocal ticks. Um, those, are, those are the most common ones that we think of. Um, there's a third though, and this one is scary, in my opinion. This one, um, 
really can be difficult to to identify. Um, a very very keen observer in the fields of of you know psychiatry perhaps or psychology um, or certainly functional neurology um, should be aware of this. But we have what's called a limbic tick. A limbic tick. A limbic system is our emotional brain. It's that it's that piece of our brain that it activates first, you know, um, and then our rational mind gets to dampen those emotions, right? That's sort of a, um, I think, a survival concept for us that we don't, if something dramatic happens or insulting or threatening happens, we don't want to just kind of sit there and ponder it for a minute, right? That might mean the difference between living and dying in some case, yeah? So the first response is a is an emotional response. And then very quickly after that, with a well-functioning brain, we have that rationale, right? So I might say like, wow, you look really nice in that dress today, you know, and to some woman in my in my vicinity. And the first thing that's gonna hit her is like, oh my gosh, he just said I have a, I'm wearing a nice dress and I think he's hitting on me. And, you know, maybe there's trauma in that, that past. Uh, but but really the, the rational brain goes like, oh, no, this is Dr. Jim, he's cool. He's just making a point, right? no big deal. I don't feel threatened. So that there's this constant interplay between emotional mind and rational mind, right? Uh, we need them both. They're both essential for our survival. Uh, but if we're not careful, <laughs> we, the emotional mind takes over and, you know, or if the brain is deteriorating in some way, the emotional mind takes over and, and we don't, we don't get to really think it through. So um, that's the background on the limbic. Uh, now, a limbic tick is usually negative. Think of it as a mantra, some mantra that we repeat to ourselves, right? I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, right? I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'm worthless, right? It hurts me to say that out loud. Thankfully, I don't feel that about myself. <laughs> I have my moments, but that globally, I don't feel that about myself. Um, but that's a, a, an a example of a limbic tick, right? What would that do to somebody psychologically if there's a neurological mechanism, mechanism pushing them to a mantra of I suck? And they say that to themselves a thousand times a day, right? This can shape this person's life, right? This can be a massive doorway to depression and a massive doorway to anxiety, right? Uh, I'm not saying that all people with depression or anxiety or any kind of mood disorder um, has limbic tics. I don't know. Um, I can tell you that oftentimes they come hand in hand. I don't know if one is necessarily causative of the other. Uh, they could just be coexisting due to similar neurological mechanisms, um, but you have to appreciate the impact of a statement like that. I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm worthless. And you say that a million times and your, your rational brain can't stop it, okay? So oftentimes too, with there's one type of tick, there's another. So you might also have a grunt and a snort and you might also have a, have a, have a shake to your, your back or neck, right? In like weird experiences. Or a lot of times I'll see people kind of like always always going down to adjust their shirt as if their shirt's not fitting quite right, but when, when the shirt fits perfectly. So they're awkward. It makes for an awkward experience among others, right? So 
Those are the three types of ticks we need to be aware of. I have brought up the limbic tick to a million, <laughs> I, I, I exaggerate, to a handful of, of doctors, both primary care, I've brought it up to therapists I've spoken with, and I've brought it up to um, psychiatrists and, and a neurologist. And nobody knows what I'm talking about. It's in the literature, okay? It's out there, it's published. I learned about it through my training in functional medicine and functional neurology. Okay, so it is, um, it is a, it's a thing, <laughs> okay? We have limbic tics. Strangely, nobody knows about them. You know, so how about this? You, you take somebody who's going through anxiety and all they can say to themselves is, you know, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, right? And they're afraid of everything. Uh, and then you give that person positive affirmations. Just write down 10 times a day, you know, I'm calm. I'm empowered. I'm, you know, whatever that might be, right? Those are good things to do. Don't get me wrong. But that's rational brain. <laughs> so if the rational brain is, is deficient and it can't dampen the limbic mind, which is going out of hand, how far are those positive affirmations going to go by themselves? I don't, I don't know. Nobody knows the answer to that. My hunch is not very far, right? It's just not a complete concept yet. We haven't satisfied the neurology. So I've, I've said this to doctors as well and to psychotherapists and all that. And I don't mean this as a put down in any way. I mean this as a let's collaborate concept. My, my statement is this. What good is psychology if we're not also appreciating neurology, right? The actual brain itself, health of the brain. And we're not appreciating internal medicine and immunology, right? Meaning like perhaps blood sugar disorders, anemias for the internal side, maybe thyroid issues, um, immunology. Are you going through you know, chronic infections? Are you having food reactions, right? So when you talk about somebody that has this like psychological diagnosis and, and they might have tick behavior that somebody's labeled as just stress, go do yoga, go do meditation, maybe. But we need to appreciate the whole concept, right? So. I think in a nutshell, that's what I want you to know about the ticks themselves. Now, please forgive uh, or, or fade out if you must, but I have to speak about some neurology. I promised I would do it back in the day when I did a neurology podcast, uh, and, and here we are. We're revisiting some notions of neurology. So there is a part of our brain, it's buried kind of in the middle, and it's called the basal ganglia, basal ganglia. And there are two primary parts of the basal ganglia. There's the direct pathway and there's the indirect pathway. And the function of the direct pathway is go, is to activate, is to initiate some kind of movement. So I want to scratch my nose. My brain knows what that means to scratch a nose. It knows where my nose is on my face. It also knows where my fingertip is. It's gonna do the scratching. Uh, and it's gonna have to say, okay, I'm ready for the scratch now go. Okay. And so I have to initiate a whole series of muscles to fire my finger up to my no nose and scratch that itchy nostril, right? At the same time, the indirect pathway has to tell it to not go, right? Because if you think about bending your arm, like let's say you're doing a bicep curl, you're activating the biceps and you're 
inactivating the triceps because if you don't want to be like in rigor mortis right you want to be you want to have some firing some not firing so we have this delicate interplay with direct and indirect pathways okay people that have parkinson's disease they oftentimes have damage to their direct pathway they they have a difficult time initiating movement the cells that create dopamine which is which helps stimulate that um, have been killed off sadly and so simply initiating a motion like i need to get up out of my chair is very difficult to do they want to do it they know they can do it they just can't get the body to do it they can't activate and then eventually they get it right but it's not like a easy you and i can just pop up off the sofa if we want to right so that's kind of a, a direct pathway lesion that's that's not typically involved with tick disorders tick disorders are behaviors that or thoughts that don't stop so what we're having here is a, a lesion and remember in neurology a lesion doesn't mean like a horrible cancerous tumor it just means a weakness a weakness in a pathway so we have a lesion to the basal ganglia indirect pathway the body says go and it's not telling it to no go okay so for whatever reason you know, contracting your ab muscles or squinching your right eye over and over and over again just happens to be the pathway that wants to go. And people with tics have, might notice this too, that they can, they can switch it if they have to. I used to have a lot more tic behavior when I was younger, like high school and in college. And I remember like when something would get a little bit too much or like my neck muscle would just get really too sore, I could change it. I could change it to a different part of the body and over time it would sort of adjust and I would I would get satisfied. So one more concept on the tick behavior. The way you know it's a tick is a tick can be stopped. You know, if somebody's having, a, a, you know, some kind of a, a facial contortion that they do or, or a sound or something that they make, they can make a conscious decision to not do it. With one exception, it will always come back. It will. It will always come back and it usually comes back with a vengeance the longer you hold off, right? It's like water building up against a dam, right? So a tick, a tick disorder or a tick behavior can be, can be controlled to a degree, but not ultimately. Okay. So that's, that, that would be a diagnostic feature. You know, if, if somebody, if you're out there and you, you want to try it on yourself or you, or somebody, you know, um, you can, you can see that. Usually the second no one's looking, their face is going all crazy, right? And, and they really have no control over it and they feel better. So this kind of is in the same category as like obsessive compulsive disorders, which can get very aggressive and very, very um, all life consuming and, and uh, disruptive. Uh, if you literally can't leave your house without locking your door, on and off 150 times or you wash your hands 100 times a day or you know or something like that or you pick out all your hair like trichotillomania right um, that can become something that is just it's it's compulsive you can't really stop it right you you will it's like a, it's almost like a smoker not being able to have a cigarette like the, you get anxious there's buildup of anxiety and, and energy in the system and you just can't get it solved until that that behavior is accomplished and the severity of the condition you know makes a difference right um if it's real real radical maybe your interval between like relief um, of those behaviors is very very small 
Maybe it's only a few seconds and then you're constantly doing it. Maybe it's just in periods of time in your day. So um, this is all clinically relevant to us from our perspective. Okay. So you have this basal ganglia concept and right, great. We have a weakness in the basal ganglia indirect pathway um, and it can't put the brakes on. And so we have this out of control motion. What in the brain helps that not happen? Okay, that's going to be key to what can we do later to help this get better and maybe not be such a big deal. In my experience, I have not seen much success completely curing tick disorders. Uh, I'm no expert. I'm no expert in functional neurology. I just know stuff. Um, I don't specialize in that area, but I know that enough people that I, that I know in, in my industry, um, it's difficult to cure it 100%. But here's what needs to happen. Here, here's the concept. So there are two areas of the brain, two primary areas of the brain, which have um, an impact on the basal ganglia, a controlling impact, an optimizing impact. So the first one being the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is what we consider to be the part of the brain that does all the cognition. It's what you're using right now, listening to me, rattling on about neurology, right? You're, you're activating your frontal lobe. And when that happens, when that frontal lobe is nice and fired up in a healthy way um, and not crashing yet, you haven't, over, you haven't fatigued yourself from studying all night for finals or anything like that. You're in a healthy state where like we're on right now, we're being intellectual, it's awesome. So that is sending... Um, an optimizing impact on the basal ganglia, both direct and indirect, right? So it's if, if you have a weakness in the indirect pathway leading to a tick behavior, firing up the frontal lobe kind of gives it some energy, kind of gives it that extra little boost that, it, that it's looking for. It's weak. It needs some support. So the frontal lobe is there for it. Um, I myself, again, I'll use myself as an, as an example. I still do have a little bit of, of some ticks here and there, especially if I'm tired and absolutely if I've ever been exposed to gluten and, I, and my neurology is inflamed, right? Those are some concepts there. But I do some public speaking. I do some teaching. So I might be a little bit nervous ahead of time. Um, maybe I'm tired. I might notice some tick activity that, that morning, let's say, and then... As soon as I stand up and say, hello, my name is Dr. Jim Cheltis and blah, blah, blah. Um, interestingly for me, my anxiety goes away immediately. I'm just, I'm on it. I'm ready to go. I'm engaged. My frontal lobe is firing for the next hour. I have noticed because I have watched myself on video, no ticks, no ticks during that time. Why? Because I have powerfully activated my frontal lobe, right? Um, if I keep going and I get to a fatigue state where that later on that night I have to crash on the couch because I'm so exhausted, I can almost guarantee you ticks will return, right? So frontal lobe status is everything. It's a massive deal. If you're going through neurological decline, be that at a young age or you know, more likely an older age, or if you've had a series of head injuries or maybe even just one good one and it's impacted your frontal lobe, Right, you're going to have other issues with cognition, maybe attention span. Um, but one of the concepts might be you can develop some tick disorder. So working on frontal lobe strength is, is important. Uh, you do that with using your brain <laughs> by puzzles, learning languages, playing music, dancing, you know, just complex things that are new and changing all the time. That's what we need. If you're good at crossword puzzles, 
awesome, good for you, switch to Sudoku and start doing math because you've already played out the word thing. Do something new and challenging. That's going to activate your frontal lobe. Number two concept is the cerebellum. Cerebellum is a structure of the brain I will talk about quite a bit as well. Um, it is on the bottom back part of your brain. It's that little kicker that kind of sits underneath if you look at a picture of a brain. It's almost like a little separate piece. Um, it's largely responsible for our balance and coordinated movements. So if I'm going to scratch my nose, the, the basal ganglia says go, and, and then it turns off some muscles to make that smooth. But I could do that with a really jerky finger and end up poking my eye out if I'm not careful. The cerebellum says, oh, we're doing this now. Okay, great. I'm going to refine the motion. Boom. Nose, scratch. Perfect. Done. Satisfaction, right? Um, so anything that works on balance and coordinated movements, sports, exercise, yoga, ballet, you know, whatever, whatever, especially if you suck at it, if there's something that you don't do well at, then balance-wise and coordinated movement-wise, then that's what you work on. Because activating the cerebellum has very similar impacts on the basal ganglia as the frontal lobe. Right? So here we have a person who has a, has a tick disorder, and, they, and they're tired of it, and they really want to get better. So they can start to work on these types of brain regions. It's, you can't really access the, the basal ganglia directly. There might be some crazy ways to do implants or something like that. I, I doubt it. Um, it's a pretty buried area of the brain. So you can activate your body, your muscles, your fine motor skills. Maybe cursive writing or calligraphy would be something, or just an art class. Something that requires that real fine motion. Maybe you want to try writing with your left hand for a little while, if you're right-handed, or vice versa, right, if you're, if you're left-handed. So challenge your, your system in a way that it's not used to being challenged, and then that strengthens the system, strengthens the neurological pathway in the cerebellum in this case. So you want to mix it up with like midline cerebellar, which is like your midline of your body and your core stability. So balancing concepts, you can do yoga, you can do, um, you know, rocker boards, which is just kind of like a little board with like a little unstable thing. Or you can do like BOSU balls, which are just kind of soft, squishy ball, half balls that you can stand on that's difficult to balance. Be careful, but these are the kinds of things to think about. Um, and then farther out on the cerebellum gets farther out on your extremities. So if you really want to work on your fine motor skills with your fingertips, great. Then like really work on some calligraphy or some art or something like that. Uh, doing that along with brain exercises, cognitive brain exercises like puzzles and, you know, learning a new language is awesome if you can do it. It's hard when you're an adult, but um, hey, you're going to concentrate. Just learn a new topic. Start reading nature magazines. Start reading science magazines. and Listen to cool podcasts, right? Good job for being here and, um, and, and exercising your frontal lobe. Together, we can do it. Okay, um, so those are the kinds of things you can do. By understanding the neurology, you understand how to help, right? How to help the system. There are medications for this, but they tend to be antipsychotics, okay? I don't recommend them unless it's very, very, very severe, okay? We don't want to do that to our, our children, especially we don't want to do that to our brains uh, long period. If you're in a fix and you're having a real life crisis, then you do what you have to do. But 
I would hope that there'd be this more of a functional approach, right, before that happens, because those medications can be tough to get off of, and they can come with a lot of side effects. So, um, what next? What else? What else is there out there that that can impact a brain, right? I just mentioned a couple. Sleep. Sleep is the most important thing for brains. Period. Hands down. If you're not sleeping well, your brain is weak. Sorry to tell you. Whatever your weakest pathway is, is going to show up in a fatigued brain. And that could be just because you're, you're chronically you know, suffering insomnia. Uh, maybe you have a, a swollen prostate if you're a man and you're waking up four times a night to go pee. That's breaking up your sleep, right? There's a whole number of things. Maybe you like to drink caffeine in the afternoon and it's just you're not getting into those deep restful REM patterns and those deep sleep patterns. That's all very common. Fast forward five, ten years of that and your brain is fatigued. If fast forward three days, your brain's fatigued, but um, take your sleep very seriously. And uh, there's there's sleep hygiene out there that, that should be discussed. I'll, I'll perhaps get into it um, in another time, but limiting your bright light exposure in the evenings is probably one of the best things you can do. Uh, okay. What are some inflammatory concepts, right? I said an inflamed brain is a weak brain and you're going to show up your things. Like I said, gluten for myself. Absolutely. If there's a a gluten sensitivity before it attacks your gut and you have like crippling abdominal pains and bleeding bloody stools and all that stuff that can happen with like celiac and before all that it's inflaming your brain okay just know that there are something upwards of 70 percent of all the gluten reactions occur in the brain not the gut so you know it's i've talked about gluten um i'm not just biased because i have the issue myself i just uh I'm knowledgeable because I've seen the literature and I see the patient populations and I know how people respond. Neurological fallout from things like gluten, dairy especially, dairy is another one, this real common um, reaction with the brain. Uh, and then really any of the gluten-free grains uh, and then anytime you kind of like, you know, increase your insulin levels because your blood sugar is out of whack, these are all inflammatory. They're going to inflame the brain. Okay. so. I'm going to leave it there. Those are some concepts, right? Get the basics solved. Blood sugar, inflammatory reactions in the diet, foods. Um, maybe your thyroid's out. You know, all the basics of functional blood chemistry need to be met because the brain is a very delicate structure, very delicate, and it needs just the right things, okay? And if you're missing any of those, it's deal breakers. Um, you can also work on cerebellar health, which is balanced, coordinated movement, fine motor skills, and you can work on frontal lobe activity, which is memory games, cognition, problem solving, puzzles, you know, learning new things you're not used to learning, okay? Um, and then you can work on stress reduction in general, uh, you know, meditate, of course meditate uh, as much as you can. Do things like yoga. If you don't want to meditate, then just find some time every week to go sit under a tree and watch the, the, the blossoms blow in the wind, right? I don't know how that looks for you, but maybe walk your dog in a nice serene environment and connect with people, right? These are all very, very powerful, important neurological concepts. So there we have it, uh, the neurology of tick disorders. Um, I will leave in closing uh, what I said in the beginning that it's on the rise, it absolutely is. Um, my children, um, well, they both have that to some degree. Um, seems like we all do in my family, interestingly. Um, but 
they have friends who actually have diagnosed Tourette's, for example, or they just have more aggressive um, tick disorders, or they're on TikTok and they see things like that. But what I can tell you is, surprisingly, it's so common now that it's not even really worthy of, um, of making fun of anymore, which is a lovely thing, a lovely thing. Um, because it can be devastating to be a child who's being ridiculed for something that they can't control, right? Um, but it speaks to what's actually going on with our neurology. Um, our children are growing up in an environment, in an increasingly inflammatory environment, with foods that have never been seen on this planet before, you know, several decades back, with increasing levels of pesticides, um, with increasing dependency on screens, and that kind of, you know, that kind of stimulation all the time, uh, I feel for them. And, and this, is not, this is not a small thing because if there are tick disorders, it speaks to an unhealthy brain, okay? It speaks to low firing rate of frontal lobes and it speaks to low firing rate of cerebellar you know, tissue. So this is not a small topic, um, but, uh, but it's something that we should all appreciate and start to work around. So, okay, thank you so much for your time and attention. Uh, my name is Dr. Jim Cheltis, and this is a functional approach. See you next time. Bye-bye.